our ears sometimes hurt. And in this passage, in Romans chapter 9, maybe even 10 and 11, there are statements and phrases that, that kind of sting the ear and, and make us say, oh, I don't know. And we can either swim up to the shallow end so that it, our ears stop hurting. And as I said last week, some have even gotten out of the pool of faith and of Christianity because they don't want to listen to that anymore. Or we can adjust the pressure on our ears by looking to God. And maybe those words would not hurt our ears anymore because we've looked to God who alone is God uh, and taken our, our eyes and our ears off of, our, off of ourselves. Well, we're continuing in that. We're we're still under. We, we took a big, deep breath, and we're still underwater. We're still in that deep end. And we've been walking along with Paul as he's been answering two questions last week. But I want to remind us again of what happened in 9, 1 through 5. It, it was there that Paul shared of his unceasing anguish and great sorrow that he had for his brothers and sisters, his Jewish family, um, uh, the Hebrew nation that seemingly had rejected Christ. And his heart was broken for them. And it was my charge as, as, as your pastor, not only to you, but to me. We talked about this in group this week, in our group at least, uh, about how oftentimes our hearts are not broken for the lost, for those who have rejected Christ. And we've been asking the Lord, and I would encourage and challenge you and urge you to continue to ask the Lord for a broken heart, a heart that has unceasing anguish and great sorrow uh, for those who have rejected Christ. Um, even those whom we see on the news who are doing the invading, for they too have rejected Christ. Our prayers ought not to only be for those in Ukraine who are being abused, uh, even the believers in the church of God, but for those who have rejected God, who are uh, acting in this way. Our heart ought to break for them because if not for a sovereign act of God in their life, they too will spend eternity separated from God, uh, from Him in hell. And so do we have that same great sorrow and unceasing anguish that Paul had? But he began to ask these questions. Has the Word of God failed uh, since all of Israel uh, seems to be rejecting Him? To which Paul says, no, the Word of God is not failed. This is a part of what God has been doing from the very beginning. Or he asked the question uh, there in verse 14, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part because he only saves some and doesn't save others? To which Paul said, by no means. He'll have mercy on those he has mercy and he'll have compassion on those whom he has compassion God is God. And again, the, the thing that will help us with these statements is getting our eyes on the Lord. And all of these passages, they have to do with God's election, God's choosing. And oftentimes, we have a problem with understanding God's election and God's choosing because we put on God our idea of election and choosing. Uh, we vote based on what we like and what we don't like, and we choose certain people. And being in a democratic society, we take all of those votes, total them all up, and say the society as a whole has chosen this person or that person. Or when you're in junior high, kiddos, and you gather around the basketball court uh, and you choose teams, you may choose most often choose them like I chose them or was chosen back in the day based on outward appearance. And being this tall in junior high enabled me to be often chose first. 
uh, only to those who chose, realizing he may be tall, but he has no skills. And we should have chosen the little guy. And, and so they chose wrongly based on outward, outward looks. And, and we take that idea of choosing and electing, and we put it upon God and say, that's not fair. That's not fair. He, he can't do that. When ever since the very beginning, God has been making it known that he does not choose based on outward appearance. He, what we read, have been reading together as a church in uh, 1 Samuel, God made that abundantly clear when he uh, allowed the people to choose Saul, a, a man who was tall and powerful and good-looking, but that God chose later David. Um, God even telling Samuel, don't look on the outside. I look on the inside of man. God has been making this known uh, from the very beginning. And he's making that known even in his salvation that he does not choose based on outward appearance. He chooses by his own will. And so in verse 19, we find ourselves in this third question, um, question and response to God's salvation and God's election. Paul says, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? Paul is bringing up the question that he believes many people have uh, reading his letter and, and a question that he has heard oftentimes as he would go into the Jewish synagogue and go into the public square and share these things. He would hear these questions when preaching of, well, why does God still find fault in me if I can't resist his will in that. This is very similar to the questioning that Job's friends asked in the book of Job when Job responded to them and said, Who will say to him, What are you doing? Job, who was experiencing great suffering in his life, and his friends were giving him bad advice. Job had uh, the wherewithal to say, who will say to him, to God, what are you doing? Even a pagan king, Nebuchadnezzar, after experiencing uh, a, a radical transformation, you can just go read about it, in uh, Daniel chapter 4, had been turned back around uh, to the Lord and said in Daniel chapter 4, verse 35, none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? Uh, Job understood. It's not right to quarrel with the Lord this way. It's not right to question and doubt God in this way. Nebuchadnezzar realized that. When, when he himself experienced a hardening and then a softening to be able to understand these things. Uh, but they ask this question. Who? Uh, Paul, Paul answers that, their question with this question. And he does it multiple times. Don't you love when that happens and you ask a question and then your teacher or your mom or dad kids, they answer your question with another question and another question and another question, and that's what Paul does today. Uh, he, they ask the question, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? To which Paul says, but who are you, O man, to answer back to God? For God has already said what he would do. Now they're answering back to him with this question, and Paul says, who are you to be able to do that? You are you're no one. He already told the readers in chapter 1 that they were without excuse, that they had already sinned against him. Romans chapter 3 made it abundantly clear that they had no good in them. Who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God who created and sustains everyone and everything? And he uses this illustration with another question. Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? 
I want you to imagine as if, uh, as if a clay pot could talk uh, is what Paul is saying in here. He's giving this clay pot some personification and saying, imagine a clay pot being able to talk back to its molder as if it were being made and saying, don't make me like this. Come on, make me, make me something better. Make me a coffee mug. Come on, make me loved, dearly loved and held every single morning. Like, why would you make me like this? This imagery is not something that Paul came up with, but he's going back to the Old Testament in Isaiah chapter 29 and, and verse 15, where Isaiah writes, Ah, you who hide deep from the Lord your counsel, whose deeds are in the dark, and who say, Who sees us? Who knows us? You turn things upside down. Shall the potter be regarded as the clay that the thing made should say of its maker, He did not make me? Or the thing formed say of Him who formed it, He has no understanding? Paul is saying it's just downright ridiculous to think that a pot would speak back to its potter, that the thing made would speak to its maker. And again, let's go back to the beginning of Romans where Paul started, that it was God who created all things. And, and people began worshiping creation rather than the Creator. And because of that, Romans chapter, uh, Romans chapter 8, all creation has been groaning since the beginning of time, since then. And Paul is saying, you're one of God's creation. And even though you're made in His image, at the height of all of His creation, you're a part of His creation. You're not the Creator. How can what is created question and quarrel with the Creator? This is something that all of us have, as Christians have come to realize at moments of our time, questioning, quarreling, rejecting, um, sinning, rebelling against God, have had to come to realize in the end, we will be judged by a holy and righteous judge because He's our Creator and we are His creation. And Paul's just bringing this to light with this imagery about that which is molded uh, and the molder. And he goes on to explain it in another way. In verse 21, Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another vessel for dishonorable use? Again, imagine the potter on his day's work, several people coming to him to commission several different pieces that they need, and that day getting a lump of clay prepared and ready to, to put on his wheel to begin fashioning, and he gets this lump of clay wet and, and folds it over and mixes it together, and, and from that lump takes one piece and makes something for honorable use and from that same lump of clay on the ground grabs another chunk of it and makes uh, another piece for dishonorable use. It, it comes from the same lump of clay. And Paul is putting forth one of those hard statements that on the surface stings your, your ears or in the deep end stings your ears. And you're like, but that doesn't seem fair. But we have to step back and get our eyes on the Lord and remember who is the Creator? Who is sovereign over all these things? God is the potter. We are the clay. He is the one who takes from that clump and forms us uh, to be one of honorable use or one of dishonorable use. Again, Paul, going back to Isaiah, this time, uh, 45, 9-12, through 12, this time God pronounces a woe against those who question Him like this. 
Woe to him who strives with him who formed him. A pot among earthen pots. Does the clay say to him who forms it, what are you making? Or your work has no handles. God, you didn't give me handles. How, how could I do what you want me to do? You didn't give me what I needed to be able to do it. Woe to him who says to a father, Why, what are you begetting? Or to a woman, with what are you in labor? Thus says the Lord, the Holy One of Israel and the One who formed Him, ask Me of things to come. Will You command Me concerning My children and the work of My hands? I made the earth and created man on it. It was My hands that stretched out the heavens and I commanded all of their hosts. Paul, again, in the midst of these questions, and again, there can be sincere questions. Um, those who sincerely want to understand these things, and then there can be others who reject God and use questions as their reasoning for it. And Paul is saying for those who are rejecting God by asking these sorts of questions, just look at God. He's the Creator. He's the one that opened His mouth and light shined forth. He's the one who opened His mouth and, and, and creation was made out of nothing. This is who our God is. And Paul wants to get our eyes on, on the Lord. And what Paul is speaking of when he speaks of honorable and dishonorable by the context of what he's talking about is, is yes, from all of God's creation, um, God has made all people, but there are some who will be used for honorable use and some who will not be used for honorable use. In fact, dishonorable use. There will be some whom the Lord chooses to save, and there will be others whom He doesn't. Again, one of those stinging rings in the ears when we're in the deep end. And yet, when we have our eyes on the Lord, it humbles us to step back. And maybe we don't know how to answer how that happens, why that happens. But we can trust that it happens. And that it, it comes from the hand of a good and gracious God who never acts sinfully, who never acts in hatred, but it comes from a compassionate and, and merciful God. Paul goes on in verse 22, and he explains it with a really long sentence. Think about it in verse 22. What if God, on one side, desiring to show His wrath and make known His power, He has endured with much patience the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. What if God, He wanted to display His power and make His wrath known, and yet He was gracious and patient and waited? He waited with that patience to not immediately display His wrath on mankind, uh, not to display His power, but He was patient with all of us who, uh, when we were born in our sinful nature, were vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. And we were prepared for destruction because we prepared ourselves for destruction. We had sinned against God. We had rejected God. We had rebelled against Him. And so let's consider first and foremost God's patience in wanting to display His power and His wrath has been patient. Uh, generation after generation, 
century after century, millennia after millennia, God has been patient. Why? Verse 23, in order to make known the riches of His glory for the vessels of mercy, which He has prepared beforehand for glory. What if God has endured rejection and endured rebellion and was patient with questioning and quarreling for years and years and years and years, all so that He could show mercy on those whom He had chosen before the foundation of the earth? That sounds like a really loving God, that He's been patient and enduring all of that rejection so that He could show compassion and mercy to more and more as the years went by. And Paul says in verse 24, even us, even us whom He has called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles, as we were discussing these, the, this chapter and these verses this week, Dej uh, pointed out Second Peter chapter three verse eight so well, and, and he it says Peter writes to a suffering group of believers. He says, "But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day." The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. God's patience is on display here. His patience so that He could show the riches of His glory for those whom He chooses to show mercy towards and compassion towards. And I don't know how God's sovereign election uh, works and, and uh, why He chooses some and not others. I, I can't explain all of those things because I'm not God. I'm not God. But what I know about God leads me to believe that He does these things for His glory and not just glory. Because to display His wrath and power would have been glorious, would it not? And to, uh, against all, all mankind, to display His wrath and His power against all mankind who had rejected Him would have been for His glory and would have made all people know that He is God. And at the same time, to have saved all all mankind and shown compassion to all people and saved all people um, would have displayed God's glory for He alone could forgive and save. And yet, God has chosen not to do it that way, though those ways might have shown His glory to all people this way because God always acts for His greatest glory we can trust that this way He chose to act would display His greatest glory and would display who He is most clearly to all mankind. That He is Creator and Sovereign over all. That He is Judge and a just Judge. But that He is also merciful and compassionate and gracious. Able and willing to save those who repent and believe. And so we have to trust that this, is, this was done because it would display God's greatest glory. And Paul, again, in verse 24, says, even us are the ones whom God has made known the riches of His glory as vessels of mercy, even us whom He has called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles, and here is where Paul begins to explain God's plan of salvation from the very beginning has not been just for the Jews. Though the Jews were God's chosen people 
God chose them, desired to show his love towards them so that they might be a light to the nations and that through them the nations might come and repent and believe and they themselves be saved. And so Paul highlights that even from the beginning, it wasn't just the Jews that God chose to save. Uh, It was the Jews and the Gentiles. And he explains this in verse 25 through 29. First, he starts with, in, in 25 through 26, the Gentile inclusion. And then in verse 27 through 29, he's going to speak about the Jewish remnant. He's going to go back to the Old Testament and point out that God's plan from the very beginning was for the inclusion of the Gentiles, of which we all in a room like this should be very thankful for. Thankful that God used Israel's rejection of Jesus as the Messiah to bring about <coughs> excuse me, the salvation of many of the Gentiles. But not only the Gentile inclusion, but also the Jewish remnant, that there has been and always will be a remnant of the Jews that God will save. So first, in verse 25, Paul quotes Hosea. Again, going back to the Old Testament as proof that this has always been God's plan of of election. And there he quotes from Hosea, probably one of your favorite books, uh, most memorized books, uh, most quotable books that, that you probably have in your repertoire of, uh, of, mem- of Bible memory. Um, he quotes from Hosea because they would have known that as good Jews and as Gentile Christians in the first century, their Bible was the Old Testament. They had no New Testament to read. We, 2,000 years after this, have the New Testament, so we uh, read the New Testament maybe more because it, it shows us the Old Testament through the lens of Christ and how we are to believe and to, to live and act. But they didn't have the New Testament, so they would have known this well. Um, but in case Hosea is not your favorite book, Hosea was a prophet. A prophet was one who would hear from the Lord uh, and speak the word of the Lord to the people of God. And he heard from the Lord during the period of Israel's history before they went into exile in Babylon. And so any of the prophets of God in the Old Testament that spoke before the exile, um, before 586 or so B.C., they're written as warnings to Israel. Don't keep doing what you're doing or else God will discipline you and and will punish you in in this way. And so Hosea's words as well as Isaiah's words later are words of warning. And get this, God tells this prophet, I mean, think about the Lord calling you to go and do a work. You, You heard Casey say earlier, when the Lord made it known to him that he ought to go spend some years in Ukraine, that that was the last thing on his list, leaving America to go to Ukraine to do sports ministry. What about this job? To take a wife whom you know will commit adultery on you a couple times. This is the job that Hosea is given by the Lord. Why? Because it would illustrate Israel's actions towards God in committing adultery against him and God's love towards Israel in welcoming her back in. What a picture. (laughs) What a picture. And Hosea was faithful. In chapter 3, verse 1, God says, after she had committed adultery against him, God says, now go and take her back. But that book is not just encouragement 
for the Jews. It was also encouragement for the Gentiles. Because when that woman committed adultery on Hosea, God said to name that child not my people. Because that child uh, was a, a child out of, uh, outside of Israel. Uh, it was not a part of God's chosen people. Um, not only that, but to name the third child, the second one out of wedlock, um, not my beloved. And so it's in those passages that God provides encouragement for the Gentile people. Uh, it's in Hosea chapter 2, verse 23, where God shows us that even in the Old Testament, God, and even before the foundation of the world, that God would use Israel's rejection of him to include the Gentiles. So it's there in Hosea chapter 2, verse 23, where Paul quotes in Romans chapter 9, those who were not my people, see that's why it's important to read your Old Testament. Again, my people is the name of that child out of wedlock. Those who were not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. Paul is saying that even in the Old Testament, when the Jews rejected God and committed adultery on Him, He would not only welcome them back as a good and loving husband, but He would take those children out of wedlock, those Gentiles, and bring them into His family as well. That God, that Israel's rejection of God and committing adultery on him would be the way that he brought the nations in. The same thing is uh, illustrated in verse 26, where Paul quotes from Hosea chapter 1, verse 10. And in the very place where it was said to them, You are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. Those children who were had in an adulterous relationship outside of wedlock would be called children of God. And again, you and I have only the Lord to be thankful for in that we are that other part of the lump that was not the Jewish lump. And that God has brought us into his family. That we are that other nation who were not his people, and yet we've been made his people by the blood of Jesus Christ and through faith in him. But it's not only that the Jewish rejection of God would mean the Gentile inclusion, Paul also wanted to highlight that in the midst of the Jewish rejection, there would always be a Jewish remnant. Remember, I highlighted or told you to highlight and underline, and some of you did in our church Bibles. Uh, chapter 9, verse 6, For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Well, here Paul is illustrating this from the Old Testament, that this has always been the way. In verse 27, Paul says, Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. Uh, obviously, Paul is making reference to the promise of God to Abraham that his descendants would be as numerous as the sand on the sea and the stars of the sky. But Paul is saying that even from the beginning, though they are that numerous, it would only be a remnant that would be saved. And, and there he quotes from Isaiah chapter 10, verse 22, um, 
where it says, For though your people Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will return. Paul translates that word as um, uh, that they would be saved in the end. For the Lord will carry out His sentence. Paul is saying that it's always been this way. Though the majority of the Jews would reject the Messiah in the first century, there would still be a remnant who would be saved. And he goes on in verse 29 to quote from Isaiah chapter 1. As Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, not left us a remnant, not left us a few who would return or a few who would be saved, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Isaiah was going back to his Bible. (laughs) Isaiah's Bible was not the whole Old Testament, for he was writing it. Isaiah's Bible was the first five books of the New Testament. He was going back to his Bible to say that this is the way it's always been. In Genesis 18 and 19, though Isaiah didn't have chapter numbers back then. In Genesis, um, God was made known to Abraham that he was going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. And it has that moment where Abraham says, God, do you think maybe, I mean, if there's just 50 people, would you destroy the whole city? If there's 50 righteous people, why don't, would you show compassion if there's just 50 people, God, would you show compassion? And God said, sure. I, I, I misspoke, God. Actually, what about 40 people? What if there's 40? Would you do it for 42? Sure. 30? Yeah. And all the way down to 10, God says, if there's 10 righteous people, I'll save the city. To which his messengers go into the city and find not 10. And yet God pulls out a remnant, a few, less than 10, a handful. He pulls out a few and ends up destroying the entire city of unrighteousness, of rejection. I imagine those whom were saved in that moment felt humbled before their Creator and merciful, compassionate Savior on that day. I I doubt they were questioning uh, in in that moment. And so Paul is answering people's questions with other questions that get to the heart of it that really is the issue of pride. We think we are God and that He should act like us. But who are we to say to Him? And this is, in fact, not anything new. This is what He's been doing from the very beginning. Wanting to include people from all nations and always saving a remnant of the Jewish nation. But he goes to a fourth question. This fourth question in verse 30. And it's quick. It says, Paul Paul questions then and, and really summarizes, what shall we say then? That the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it, That is a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel, who who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. What shall we say then, Paul says? And then he summarizes what he's been saying in all of chapter 9. That there have been a group from the nations, the Gentiles, who even though they weren't seeking God, even though they weren't even trying to honor God, they happened to find a place with God by faith in God. Not because of works, not because they looked better than the Jews, not because they deserved it, not because they earned it, but because they recognized who God was, a holy righteous creator and judge and who they were a sinful rebellious rejecting people and it was in that place where they rather than questioning and quarreling with God bowed their knee 
repented and believed and trusted in God. And yet Israel, who had been given a law, a law to lead them in holiness and righteousness, attempted to perfectly obey that law, uh, even becoming legalistic in that law, and in the end found that they were not able to perfectly obey it, therefore they were not able to attain the righteousness that they were attempting to attain. The thing about the law is, yes, it's a guide into holiness and righteousness, but it more so is a mirror showing us that we have fallen short. It's a measuring stick to to show us that we can't do it, and we need another one who can do it, which is all the reason why God sent His one and only Son to live a perfect and sinless life in accordance with the law of righteousness perfectly, and yet was willing to be our substitute and take our place and to die the death that we deserve on the cross. We need to recognize this as Paul is uh, helping us to understand that it is not by works, but it is by faith. Paul brings up the question that they would have in that moment. Why? Why would God do it this way? Why, why did this happen? Paul answers, because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. Israel pursued righteousness. Israel pursued their place in heaven by righteous works, by obeying a law rather than repenting of the fact that they couldn't obey the law and trusting in Jesus Christ, the Messiah, who perfectly obeyed the law and died in their place. Paul explains that they have stumbled over the stumbling stone. They've they've stumbled over this stumbling stone um, that was predicted in Isaiah, both in Isaiah 28, verse 16, also in chapter 8, verse 14, even in Psalm chapter 118, verse 22. Multiple different places, God predicts this stone that will be laid in Zion. Paul quotes in verse 33, As it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Paul is using his Old Testament as, as proof that there is a really a, a dividing line. Those who pursue uh, their place in heaven by works and those who pursue it by faith. And that God would, a long time ago, send a stone, a stone that would be a stumbling stone and a rock of offense for some, and for others, a foundation stone. Others, uh, a stone on whom they would build their lives upon by faith. Jesus even quoted these words of this stumbling stone to the Jews in Matthew 21, and then said, Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its, fir- its fruits. Jesus said, uh, the kingdom of God is going to be taken from the Jews because you're stumbling over this stumbling stone. You're stumbling over me. You're falling down. You've tripped over this. Rather than those whom build their life upon it. Those whom find Jesus as the Messiah, as the Christ, as their foundation stone, and by faith they begin building their life on it. Jesus was hinting at the fact that he was the stone. Peter, 
would go on in Acts chapter 4, verse 11 to bring up this idea of this stumbling stone and say that Jesus is the stone. Jesus is the Messiah. He's the stone whom God predicted hundreds of years before would be stumbled upon over by the Jews and a foundational stone for those who would believe. Even uh, Paul will use this, not only in Romans, but will use it in several other places. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 22 being one of them. For Jews demand sign, signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. And, and he defines what Christ crucified is. Listen, sound familiar? A stumbling block to Jews and a folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Paul is trying to say, it's by faith. It, this salvation, this election is displayed in faith. And faith leads itself to works. But your election is not displayed in your family heritage. Your salvation is not displayed in your church attendance. Your, you receiving the mercy and compassion of God is not displayed uh, in how much you give to God, whether it be financial or time or gifts and talents. Faith is what displays our salvation. Faith is what displays God's election. And it's a faith that's built on Christ crucified and risen again. That's it. Nothing else. Nothing else is able to save. Nothing else is able to give us that assurance and so when Paul started this chapter off answering the question, has God's Word failed? Has God's Word fallen? To which Paul answered, no, by no means. God's Word has not failed. God's Word has not fallen. Here he says, it's you who have fallen. It's you who have tripped over Jesus. It's you who have tripped over all of your questions and quarreling. It's you who have tripped over your works, uh, trying to earn your way to it. God's Word has not fallen. You've fallen. And the only way you'll be able to get back up and stand up for any length of time is if you'll stand on Christ who is the cornerstone, the foundation. And so we have this challenge, this encourage from Paul based on answering some really hard questions based on some Old Testament Scriptures that have a New Testament reality for us um, that God is sovereign over salvation. His Word has not failed. He's not unjust. Um, he can still find fault in us because we have rejected him and yet he has made a way God has made a way and his way is Jesus and his way has always been Jesus faith in Jesus faith for the Gentile and faith for the Jew and the rejection of Jesus has made this opportunity available to us to repent and believe today and to follow him by faith and at the same time there is a remnant of Jews around the world who are walking by faith in Jesus as their Messiah whom are experiencing the mercy and compassion of God have you have you experienced the mercy and compassion of God don't begin asking questions, well, I, I don't know, am, am I one of the elect? I don't know if I am. I don't know if God's chosen before the found. None of that matters. Because what Paul is about to say 
in Romans chapter 10 is everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Do you want to experience that mercy, that compassion, undeserved as it may be? If so, call on the name of the Lord and know that in calling by faith, the Lord has elected you before the foundation of the world and endured much patience to be able to show you the riches of His glory today. And Christian, if you have experienced that mercy, that compassion, humble yourself again today. Be thankful again today. And do what Paul is going to urge us to do in Romans chapter 10. Knowing that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And though God is the one who elects and calls uh, people to himself, he's chosen to use you. He's chosen to use you. For how can they call upon him in whom they have never heard? And how will they hear about him unless they're preaching? And how will they preach unless they are sent? How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. Our response to having received this mercy and this compassion is going, proclaiming that all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Let's do that together as God's church, Christ's church this morning. Let's pray. Father, would you help us? Help us to be the church in the world that we would be a people who have Christ crucified and risen from the dead on our lips, knowing that He is the only stone worth building our lives upon. And God, I pray that if there's someone here this morning who has yet to put their faith and trust in You and has been attempting to make themselves right with You by doing good works, saying good things, giving good gifts, trying to attain it on their own, that they would realize that that's been tried by people around the world in every generation, and it has always failed. Might they this morning, rather than tripping and stumbling over Jesus, questioning and quarreling against God's Word, might they bow their knee as we have and repent and believe in Christ and experience the mercy and compassion that you have, God, for all who repent and believe. I ask and pray in Jesus' powerful, patient name. Amen. Would you stand and let's praise his name.